0: Bless you, Mark, for leading us through with your voice all growly. Um, And yes, I can recommend to you, uh, get yourself a high-vis vest. It's my new Christmas tradition, my new favourite Christmas tradition Hi, VisVez, and help people cross the road. It's amazing. It feels so good. I have missed my calling to be a lollipop man, I think. Um, I would have enjoyed that. It's great. You get to talk to people and hang out. So if you come into the Christmas fair, you'll find me out on the road between the bell and the other side of the road, helping people cross, at least for an hour. At least an hour, I'll be there, you know. All right. Um, if we can bring up... Yeah, brilliant. There it is. Uh, this is the last um, of our uh, talks on Jesus Flavoured culture. I want to welcome folks that may be new to us this morning visiting. It's so good to see you. You're so welcome. You've caught us just at the end of a sermon series where we've been thinking about waking up the flavour of who we're supposed to be Christ-like. And this morning I want to talk about this culture of compassion. It seems so appropriate on a day like today. It's what the world does need is more compassion. And that's not just a nicey-nicey, wafty, liberally thing to say. I believe it's firmly rooted in the scriptures, and the commands, and even the character of our God. If we want to be more like Jesus, then a culture of compassion should be something that we cultivate. All right. So, um, I want to ask you first: Does anyone have a fish on their car? Unbelievable! <laughs> I knew it. You're all like me. I knew they were going out of fashion. Do you remember when everyone had a fish on their car? Where have all the fish gone on the cars? I googled fish on car, expecting to see that lovely Christian thing, and I got this. That is not That is not it. (laughs) And when I saw that, I'm like, right, so fish on cars have gone out of fashion. The whole generation now think that's what fish on car is. Honestly, this is what we're talking about. Remember these bad boys? They were brilliant, weren't they? I even remember David told me that when you did the building, you had uh, your own bumper stickers, We're Rebuilding Zion. Was that there? Is that right? Oh, there's any of those, I'll have one of those. That's vintage now. Put it on on eBay and get get 50 pence for that. That'd be brilliant. Um, So, I don't have a fish on my car. Not just because, like you lot, I'm trendy and it's all, you know passe, but partly because I felt like uh, I could never really live up to it. I felt like, I'm going to be honest here, I felt like that I might let what the fish stands for on the back of my car, that I'm a Christian, I might let the whole thing down um, by getting grumpy and angry when I'm driving. So I've always avoided the fish on my car because I'm not a very quick to anger kind of guy, I'm not. Um, But if one thing winds me up, it's for some bizarre reason, it's when I'm in the car and there's dreadful driving going on all around me. I'm really quick then to honk the horn. I'm just like, and I think, oh man, I'm supposed to be a pastor, I'm supposed to be a Christian. At least I've not got a fish on my car, it's absolutely (laughs) fine. But the other day, um, I was with the kids in my van and we were turning around a roundabout on the way back from Heathfield School back to Taunton, where we live in Hamilton Road, and... I was in the lane and this, this, this car came and careered so quickly that he swept round. I don't know what he did. I was doing about 20 around this roundabout. He must have been doing 50 or 60. Careered around this small roundabout, careered into our lane so fast that he then lost control and started to do this. And obviously that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> Oh, Dad, what are you doing? Don't, don't mind me for a moment. At which point... The guy then put his blinkers on, put his hand out the window to wave. I think he absolutely scared himself silly, if I'm honest, because he was like, I'm really sorry. It was like, okay, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. Well, it was fine until I followed him all the way to the next set of lights, which point he gets out his mobile phone and starts doing something on the phone, and the lights turn green. Ah! I was not having any of it, I'm telling you. There's one thing that winds me up. It's terrible driving. But (laughs) if I had a fish on the car, and people see some honky, aggressive, grumpy, angry, (laughs) judgy kind of guy, how does that look as a Christian I remember when I was at school, my friends knew I went to church and knew I was a Christian. Um, and even their parents would do this. It would be the kids, and even their parents would want to play. Oh, if I ever said anything a bit silly, or was a bit naughty, or uh, you know, did something wrong, well, you're a Christian. You're not supposed to be like that, are you? Eh? And I used to hate it. You're a Christian. You should be goody, goody two shoes. You should never uh, be doing anything like this. And I felt the weight of it, and I didn't really like it that much. But funny enough, they were kind of right. They kind of were looking at me going, well, this guy says he's a Christian. He's supposed to be different. And in that small way, they were right. We are supposed to be different. You see, I've met Christians along my journey, trying to work out my faith and following Jesus for the last 20 odd years that have been very proud of not being different. Oh, I'm just an ordinary kind of guy. I love to swear and muck about and it's all good and whatever. I don't know why I've got some dodgy London accent. <laughs> <laughs> all right, son, all right, hey. I'm the artful dodger. Yeah, um, they're not like that. Um, <laughs> but I remember hearing them at first, it sounded attractive, especially when I was young. Oh, you can be a Christian, be really cool, like swear and stuff. And I thought, no, you've kind of missed something here. It's not supposed to be like that. You see, the world that's so hurting doesn't need us to be more like them. It needs us to be more like Jesus. We want to reach out to a hurting world. We don't want to be more like a hurting world, but more like Jesus. And that's what we've been thinking about in this series, as we've been thinking about this Christ-like culture, different like Jesus. And we've gone through... The idea of the culture of welcome, it was quite a radical one, it stirred up slightly in us, because it's not easy to welcome radically, especially when it costs us. But that's what Jesus calls us to do and models, this culture of worship, where we just seek the heart, we are a people of praise, we seek the heart of the Father, we love to worship. This culture of participation, where everyone, you don't just sit back, on oh, I'm just here for a free ride, but I want to... Be a part of God's kingdom breaking in. All of us have a place and a part in that. A culture of expectation that God might actually show up. And when we pray, he might actually listen. And he might actually respond. That God is real and wonderful and powerful and he cares. And we don't want to live our lives like practical atheists where we kind of come to church on a Sunday but then it doesn't impact the rest of our week. The culture of family. This idea that we love one another and it's a real gift to be part of a church family and although we're all different, that's a really good thing because we're all united in Christ. And Finally, a culture of presence. We seek and pursue the presence of the living God by his Holy Spirit in all we do. And so we're on the last one this morning. We want to be like jesus as a church and as individuals we want to carry this culture with us through the weekend as a church but if we went to jesus it's really interesting say jesus we want to be like you i think he'd say something that might surprise us He'd turn around and say this then be like my father interesting the Son always points to the Father. And he says, If you know me, then you know him. There is no unchristlikeness in God whatsoever. As we see Jesus we get to know the heart of the Father because he reflects the Father's character in all that he does. And on two occasions Jesus actually uses these phrases in similar context, one in Matthew, one in Luke, where he tells us to be like his father. The first one he says this, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. You go, gosh, that sounds hard. Be complete. Be morally perfect in all your ways. Steer far from sin and all the things you know you shouldn't be doing or perhaps as Leviticus and 1 Peter put it, be holy, as God is holy. And the other time Jesus says it, he says this: You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate, kind, loving, embracing of others, even in their mess and sin. First, when we see those two things, we might ask, can they really go hand to hand? I want to say to you, yes, they must go hand to hand. You see, I want us to think about cultivating this culture of compassion, but I don't want us to just jump to the obvious and go, well, that just means we've got to be nice, fluffy, fluffy bunnies. We never say boo to a goose. You know, it's all lovely. That's quoting Ewan, by the way, fluffy bunnies, just so you know. Just quoting, you know. Dear old boy, what I knew And um, uh, I like to quote my heroes. Um, and uh, no, but it's not. We're not just called to fluffy bunnies and oh, everything's fine. Oh yeah, it doesn't matter how you live or whatever. We just want to be kind and compassionate. That's not what we want to do. If we're going to be like our father, then we also can't lose this call to be holy, as well, distinct and different. Creating a culture of compassion doesn't mean we disregard sinfulness as what the Bible calls all our human propensity to stuff up and get stuff wrong. doesn't mean we just disregard it as if it doesn't matter in the name of being kind. We're going to be like our Heavenly Father, which we want to be, because we want to be like Jesus. Then compassion and holiness must go together. We need both. Holiness and compassion You see, from the beginning of Scripture, as we begin to understand who this God is, the first thing we really understand, one of the big pictures that we understand of God, is that he is holy. He is utterly set apart from the sin and the muck and the mess that we so readily enjoy or choose or get caught up in. God's not like us in that regard. He will not tolerate it. From the moment of Adam's greed, Adam gets cast out and away from God's presence. Cain's murder of his brother, he gets cast out, away with that, into the wilderness. Noah, a whole wicked generation, an evil generation, wiped out because of their sinfulness. God is holy. Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, would you save them if there were just like one or two or three that were good there? Yeah, I would. But no. Wiped out. Our God is more holy, more righteous, more awesome than any of us can comprehend. Such was his glory. Yahweh, the Lord. That nobody could see him or go near to him. Apart from one, at one point, Moses. You'll know the story. This extraordinary, mysterious way, Moses meets this holy God in a burning bush, that's burning but not consumed. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And he's called to help his people be set free from Egypt. And God does the most extraordinary things, signs and wonders, knocking down all their beliefs in other gods and calls his people out. And there they gather around the mountain in Sinai. and Moses gets to go up the mountain and be in the presence of this God. But so holy is God that all around this mountain there is smoke and clouds and thunder and lightning. The people are terrified. They're not even able to go near the mountain. They're not even able to touch it. But somehow Moses is enabled to go up, to be in the presence of God and to speak with him. Moses has the audacity at one point to say, God, Do you care? Will you show me your glory? For some mysterious reason, this holy God goes, okay, I will pass by you. Now, that was a silly thing to ask from Moses. Really? Holy, holy God. Well, God, in his mercy, says, I'll hide you in a cleft of a rock. As I go past, you will just catch a glimpse of me as I pass by. Just the back. There's no way. Moses could cope with the glory of God. Just the back, And as I go past, I will declare to you my character, who I am. And so Moses is there, waiting for this moment where the holy God will pass by. And what will he say, the Lord, as he passes by? Well, perhaps he might say this. The Lord, the Lord, the unrelenting and judgmental one, Quick to anger and abounding in ongoing disgust. It's not what he says, is it? That's not scripture. This is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Isn't it extraordinary when we hear who our God really is? The word compassionate used here is the Hebrew word rakam, and it's derived from the word for womb, rechem, as well. And in this way, God's saying, I'm a God with this motherly, Tender care and love for the vulnerable and the hurting and the struggling. I have compassion. It's the first thing he says. He is the God of judgment and holiness. And yet he shows mercy and compassion to the broken and the frightened and the sinful. But there is a yet, yet, as he passes by, he also says this, yet, yet, Moses, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And we go, oh, oh, I don't know if I like that bit. Could you have just stopped, Matt, at the previous bit? Holiness and compassion. Compassion and Holiness. Together and inseparable. Here is the one who rightly judges wickedness. Allows no excuse for sin. For greed. For hatred. For murder. He condemns it. He stands against it. And yet here is the one who is compassionate to repentant sinners. Here is the one who is gentle to the broken. Kind to the sorrowful. Who provides for the vulnerable. Here is our loving Heavenly Father. Friends. Friends. Understanding God's immense compassion doesn't require us to remove God's holiness. If anything, hear this this morning. His compassion is all the more extraordinary when we realise just how holy he is. If I was just to tell you, be kind, be compassionate, be nice, we'd have skipped too far too quickly. Our holy God, by his very character, who cannot look at or tolerate sin, stands against its corrupting, foul and vile nature in every way, yet still has compassion on sinful, broken people in our world today. Jesus says, be like my father, be holy, be compassionate. So hear this, friends. If we're going to cultivate this culture as a church of compassion, we don't start by throwing away God's holiness. We don't start by just going, whoa, none of it matters. Just be nice and kind to everyone and everything always. No. We don't say sin doesn't matter. No. It does. Yet cultivating a culture of compassion does require us to root out the toxic religious culture of isolationism, of self-righteousness, of judgmentalism and of condemnation. That's what we need to do if we're going to have this culture of compassion. Because Condemning the culture of religious elitism was the very culture that Jesus over and over again stood against so forcefully in his teaching. He challenged so powerfully with his compassion. Judge, Jesus said, and you'll be judged. Condemn and you'll be condemned. They're not my words, they're his. Gosh. Instead, when you see someone and call them enemy, and you want to just push them as far away, I want you to pray for them, Jesus said really pray for those who are persecuting you care for the widow reach out to the leper welcome in the outcast feed the hungry before you start pointing at the tiny speck in another's eye realize you've got a massive log in your own eye jesus says he couldn't have made it clearer we just focus on how holy and perfect and wonderful we are if we're not careful we become victim to the culture of condemnation. Jesus stands against it. He says, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. Time and again, Jesus models a compassion rooted in empathy for others. He shows us a way of seeing and understanding people in a way that the religious elite who were so concerned about holiness and separation... Getting it all right. So they push away and condemn you're dirty, you're a no good, you're a loser, you're a sinner, you're a foreigner. Get away, we must stay holy. Jesus did the opposite. He reached out to them, he noticed the suffering, he deeply cared. When people wrote others off, Jesus reached out and saw the person beneath the label. We're going to avoid slipping into this culture of condemnation. And we need this deep sense of empathy and understanding for others. We need to really see their hurt, to understand their struggle, to understand that no matter who they are, what title they are of, what socioeconomic background, race, gender, sex, whatever it is, that here is another human being made just like me in the image of God who's struggling. In fact, author Frederick Bukner, a minister, describes what it means to have compassion in this way. Compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside somebody else's skin. To feel another's pain as if it was ours. And not to just stop there, because compassion is when we then do something about it. Compassion is not just the feeling, it's the action. It's what sets it apart from sympathy. Compassion comes alongside to help, to love, to bring healing, to bring hope to those in need, just as Jesus did. Indeed, such was his empathy and compassion that Jesus set aside his status and literally came to see what it was like to live in our skin. It's kind of a way of describing the gospel. Jesus came because of his compassion and lived in our skin, if you like. He became human. He walked in our mess and he did something about our plight. So, in today's passage, we're just going to change gear a minute here. I just want us to enter in for a moment into this lady's skin, if you like, to walk in her shoes for a moment, to have empathy. We have no name. No age, we don't know where she's from, but we can assume she must have been visiting or living in Jerusalem at the time. We know nothing about her family, her children, her upbringing, her social class. We don't know her struggles, her history, her hopes or her dreams. We don't know who her friends were, what made her laugh or cry, nor how she's ended up in the broken mess and terrifying ordeal that we read about in these verses. But what we do know is that she is in a mess. Who she was with, we don't know. But we know she's been caught in adultery. Can you imagine how everything must have been like a blur for her? Since the moment the temple guards burst in, dragged her half naked, kicking and protesting out of the house and onto the street. Can you feel the burns on her arms as they roughly grab her and manhandle her down, the, down towards the temple? And how along the way she begins to realise that she's in real and life-threatening trouble. Can you imagine the sickening fear inside? she hears the raised voices of the temple guards, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law shouting at her, spitting on her as they drag her, shove her, kick her, for all to see, all to see her shame. You're filthy, you're scum, you're a sinner, you're going to die, kill her, stone her, she doesn't deserve to live, take her to the camp temple courts. No, we're going to take her to the rabbi, we're going to take her to Jesus. Perhaps she wonders if there's any way she can run or escape or whether she could plead with the guards to let her off, but there is no way out of this. She's been caught in the very act. Witnesses are shouting her crime to all who will listen. She's broken the holy law of Moses. The consequences are clear. Both the man and women are to be put to death. Her mind may have turned to the fate that lay ahead. Violence that we can't imagine as they would bind her and start to throw rocks and heavy stones at her blow after agonising blow, broken bones, blood, searing pain, until one, if she's lucky, might hit her skull and knock her out. Imagine how her heart must have been racing as they brought her into the presence of the one who would now judge her. She fell to the ground in despair as they threw her before Rabbi, before Jesus. Here, here, through the noise of shouting, one of the Pharisees loudly declares, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? You can hear the gasps of horror, the whispered voices of judgment, as those who've been milling around beforehand begin to take in what she's done. With head lowered and eyes cast low, all you can see through, the hair and the tears, is the dust on the ground and the feet of the religious teacher who now holds your life in your hands. Powerless, darkness, guilt, shame, despair, violence, and imminent death. You don't look up, you don't speak, heavy breathing, heart racing, head down. You only fear like you've never feared before. This is what it's like to be in her skin right now. You see, in this moment, you know you deserve judgment. Flung before this judge, caught in the depths of the sin. It's only a matter of seconds until somebody will bend down to pick up the first stone. and Your heart, heart misses a beat as you realize that's exactly what the rabbi's doing. He's bending down. And yet, it's not a stone he picks up. As you stare through the ground, through the tears, the blur, you notice that something's moving by his feet. You blink to focus and you realise it's his hand. He's writing something with his finger on the dust. Instead of picking up a stone of judgment in the most extraordinary act of compassion, Jesus crouches down and enters into her world. That world down there, her line of sight, only looking down, he pops right down and gets into her line of sight. He stoops and enters into the dirt and the fear and the dust and the shame and he begins to change it and shape it to something different. What did he write? I'd love to know. I will ask Jesus in heaven. I will. What was it, Jesus? Was it just a line? Was it just drawings? Did he write a psalm? Could he, maybe, just maybe, have written the words that his father said to Moses as he passed by? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. I don't know. (laughs) But I do know that Jesus was letting the woman realise that he understands. He understands what she's done. He understands who she is. He understands the sin and the mess that she's got herself into, the deep fear that fills every limb. and I think every one of us could understand something of the loneliness, the fear and powerlessness that she must have felt, with her life in tatters, her heart and hopes broken by the mess of sin and fear. It's in all of our natures to mess up sometimes. Perhaps not in the way this woman has, but then again perhaps in that very way, perhaps even worse. Perhaps you can recall those times in your life when sin and muck, tears and brokenness, all we hear is a voice that says, no one loves you, they couldn't. You've messed up completely. You're in an unreachable place, completely on your own. But could it be by this one simple act of writing, Jesus is stooping into the loneliness of Hermes, and says, I am here, even here with you. I am right here now. You're not unreachable. Because that's what God does. He's the God who stoops, giving up the very best of the glory of heaven to come down and be with us. Enter this world of corruption and violence and war and murder and rape and greed and abuse and slavery. He Chose to come because he believed things could be different he believed in the broken lives of the humanity created he came because this is the compassion of our God there is a saviour friends, hear it this morning maybe this is what you need to hear who comes down to your level enters your mess your sin and your despair and all around voices are saying you're dirty and unforgivable and lovable and guilty. He says, I still see you. I believe things can be different. He doesn't deny your sin. Holiness. He sees it. With compassion. He reaches out to you. says you're not alone. You're still loved. There is a way for forgiveness and restoration. Does God want you to hear that this morning? And yet even as the judge of heaven and earth shows this compassion to this broken sinner, the religious crowd, the so-called holy people, well, they're having none of it. culture of condemnation is abounding. They're questioning, and tutting, and sneering. And I love what the Bible says. It says that Jesus straightens up. It's like, I'm not having this anymore. He squares up if you like to them he's had enough looking them in the eyes with the authority and weight of words which can only come from the mouth of our holy god himself he declares let the one who is without sin cast the first stone was there anger in his voice was there gravity in his tone that drove the words home did somehow the heat of his holiness burned through every word he said? Go on then, pick up the stone if you have not sinned. Whatever it was, it's clear that the accusers were finally silenced. As Jesus goes back down, writing in the dirt again, the eldest of the accusers are the first to leave. They know, they've understood their own guilt before a holy God. Us two friends, before we join the culture of condemnation, before we are quick to judge and criticise, quick to anger, write off and reject, ignore and look down our nose, we need to understand we're just as guilty. It could be you or I there on the ground. Those stones could be ready for me or you. The elders, we need to put the stones down. One by one, the whole crowd follows suit. And now, it's just her and Jesus. I wonder how she felt in this moment. Perhaps she just knew shame as it sunk in. Her own pride and sin had led her to this disregard God's teachings, to cause such damage. Perhaps she was confronted with the awful truth that she was a broken sinner and that she was stood before this holy man. Little did she know the judge of heaven and earth. Friends, if it was us, we'd be the same. Before God, our pride is undone. Before God, our claims to righteousness are undone. Before the holiness of God, we are ruined. This is Jesus that taught. If you even look at another lustfully, you've committed adultery. Jesus wasn't light on sin. And so we find ourselves waiting for the first stone of condemnation to be thrown. And yet the judge of heaven and earth doesn't even pick up a tiny piece of gravel. He stops writing and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she says. And neither do I. Go now. Leave your life of sin. Compassion and holiness. Holiness and compassion. It's something more powerful than we can ever comprehend. Holiness that will not tolerate sin stands against the mess, the destruction, the greed of it all. And yet a compassion that reaches out in love to a broken sinner to the outcast, the guilty wretch like you and me. Compassion that says, I'm here. There's hope and forgiveness. Now go and sin no more. This is the compassion that shook this woman to the core and changed her life. It has shaken me to the core and changed my life. And it can shake any one of you to the core and change your life. When you realize before God, you don't have to pretend that you're some perfect person, wear a nice tie, put a nice jumper on, live a lie before him. He knows, yet he still reaches out in love and grace to you. This is the compassion our world needs. Even when it costs us, even when it's undeserved, will we show kindness and healing and grace and forgiveness and welcome and love And the compassion of our God. Because. And I finish with this. This is the very compassion. That we ourselves. Have been shown. By our God. Brothers and sisters. We've been shown. A compassion. That is beyond. Our comprehension. So much. Did the father. Love this world. That he would give. Jesus his son. So much. Did Jesus love us. That not only. Did he come and step into the depth of our wickedness? But he went to the cross and suffered and died, so that we might be forgiven and be declared holy because of him. As so we see Jesus beaten and spat at and abused, I know what sin looks like, it looks like that. Cocky, arrogant, spitting at Jesus, mocking him, go on, save yourself, you loser so filthy, ugly, as he's suffering and gasping for breath, the perfect one, the one who made us and loves us beyond measure, writhing in agony, and all we can do is laugh. And yet, with his final breaths, Jesus declares this, and I still can't comprehend it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Holiness and compassion. i sat behind a wheel honking at that guy, quick to anger, quick to judge. Did I know him? No. Do I know what he's going through? No. Was he having a family crisis? Was he contacting someone on the phone? I don't know. I'll never know. Maybe he was just being stupid. But I was quick to anger, quick to condemn. I wouldn't do things like that, I declared. In a world of raging violence, war, condemnation, Father shows a love that's far stronger than the greatest armies. In a world caught in a cycle of revenge, Jesus breaks the cycle with a forgiveness that is utterly undeserved by any of us. In a world of hatred and division, our God has demonstrated a kindness to each of us that is beyond measure. Here we are up to our necks in sin and greed and violence. We sit under the rightful judgment and condemnation of a holy and perfect God. And yet here he is showing us a compassion that we cannot comprehend. Jesus as a church, we want to be like you. Jesus as individuals, we want to be like you. And he would say then, be like my Father. Be holy, just as he is. Be compassionate, just as he is. Holy Spirit, help us, I pray. Amen.